Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Alina Martin, Third Sector Reporter. And I'm Russell Hargrave, Senior News Reporter at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing fundraising for difficult cause areas. And I should say, just a note of caution, that will involve talking about some themes including perpetrators of abuse. And if that worries you at all, this may not be quite the episode for you. And in this week's Good News Bulletin, we will be celebrating Russell Crowe, whose recent donation has made a huge difference to a local bookshop, which begs the question, who is the best Russell? Uh, What Alina has realised straight away is that my chance to talk about myself, other people called Russell, what my name is, (laughs) plays to my strength, it plays to my ego straight away. But before we even get onto that, listen, this is our first time together. We've had so many oddball couples on this podcast. But you and I, Alina, this is the first time we've sat opposite each other. So uh, how does it feel for you? How's it going? It's great. Um, I'm sure it is an experience I will remember forever. Let's let's, actually, let's see how it goes. Yeah, no, no, you might kind of can this after the first attempt to get on with me. Um, And a quick reminder for those of us who are interested in the kind of Kremlinology of third sector, Mm. you've sort of had a bit of a roundabout route to get here because you were here as an editorial assistant. Then I can't help noticing you left third sector to go and live with someone else and work with someone else for a little while. Very and then lo and behold, excitingly, you came back, a returning hero as a reporter. Why did you, uh, why did you come back, Alina? Well, that, that is a great question. Um, yes, I started in January uh, with third sector on a sort of grad scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was here for six months, which is what how long my placement was going to be. Um, and then I was away for a month on to my next publication, where I cried myself to sleep every night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we got all those like tortured late night messages saying, save me, someone yeah. come and, and look Sorry after you. Sorry about those. Joking. I, ha- I had a great time there and I learned a lot of things. But then eventually a reporter position came up with Third Sector and Emily and Andy let me come back, which is great. I'm very excited about it. I've loved coming in every day and getting to chat to people in the sector about the very important work they do. Mm-hmm. And today I'm particularly excited to finally... And definitively settle the matter of who the best Russell is. Okay, you're not going to let that go. You definitely want to get down to that. No, because while I was researching this episode, I found out that there are many important Russells out there. My personal favorite being the celebrity astrologer Russell Grant, who, according to his Wikipedia page, offers a pet psychic service. So this makes me think two things. So one is uh, those of us, some of us, knew Russell Grant the first time around. He was always on Good Morning Britain or whatever it was. He'd sit in the corner and wearing a garish shirt and would read out the kind of made-up horoscopes Mm. at the end of every episode. But this must be the first time that you've heard of him. This is like your first time coming around. Yes. Well, this this sounds like it was before my time. Yeah. Um, And the other thing is uh, a pet psychic service. Did I read that right? Mm -hmm. So you have... A dog. I know because you show me the photographs and tell me the stories on a regular basis. And I know how much you love that dog. But would you want to read her thoughts? And worse still, what if her thoughts were that she didn't like you very much? Um, Yeah, that's a valid point. And generally, I would be worried. But you see, even if she didn't love me, she does love attention and treats, which Mm -hmm. I provide in abundance. So I'm pretty confident. But before we hear more about the other Russell and his much-celebrated donation, we're going to talk about what happens when donations are few and far between. Okay, let's crack on. There is a group of charities that do incredibly important work with people in the criminal justice system. 
It doesn't attract the kind of public support you read about in the newspapers, but the work is extremely important, and it's going on nonetheless. Here to tell us more about these causes and the work of those charities, we're really pleased to be joined by Anne Fox, Chief Executive of Clinks, a charity that supports organisations working in the criminal justice system, and Rihanna Taylor, who is the Chief Executive of Circles UK, a charity that provides accountability and support to perpetrators of sexual harms. Anne and Rihanna, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So let's start with Anne. In the latest State of the Sector report, which Clinks publishes every year, figures show that charities supporting people in the criminal justice system get most of their funding from government or trusts and foundations, with only about 6% coming from donations from the general public and even less from corporate partnerships. Could you briefly outline why this is and what the main fundraising challenges for charities working in the criminal justice system are? The main challenge and the main reason for that fundraising profile, which is very different from across the kind of typical sector, is the popularity or unpopularity of the beneficiaries of those charities. So we have a public perception challenge in criminal justice about the deservedness or otherwise of helping people who have committed crime, who have done wrong, and to an extent, their families who often refer to themselves as guilty by association. So the income generation as a result is primarily in the statutory income end and the charitable income end, with challenges in both of those. But And where there is individual giving or voluntary income, it tends to be more for the sale of goods. So social enterprises or arts performances, there's all sorts of wonderful stuff happening in our sector, but it tends less to be direct debit, individual giving, regular giving. Um, It's more in the kind of retail and earned income end of things. And I mean, Anne mentioned there the sort of the public perception challenge, which I think we can all imagine and Rihanna, you've talked to third sector in the past about getting pushed back on social media because of the causes that, that you're working for and the people that you're trying to support. I mean, do you think attitudes have changed at all or are changing? Is there a route to um, fundraising directly from the public for an organisation like Circles UK? Yeah, I think over the years we have definitely seen uh, a change in public attitudes, you know, and it is partly because we have started talking a lot more about our work, but in a very careful and a very well-managed way, because we think we should have these conversations and we should actually explore the issues around, um, you know, what, what what Anne has outlined. And I'm very pleased to say that we are seeing a more positive approach. Now, a lot more people understand that if we want to prevent further victims, we actually have to work with uh, perpetrators of abuse, uh, which is our line of abuse, you know, of um, our, our line of work in terms of working with people who, who sexually harm others. Um, and I'm really pleased to see that a lot of people have a more positive attitude now, you know. However, I think having said that, I think it is still incredibly difficult to raise funding for our work. You know, a lot of people are prepared to support behind the scenes. And we have fortunately a, a group of very loyal funders who have stuck to us over the years. But sort of very big corporate sponsors and people are not prepared to stick their their heads above the parapet and actually support a cause like ours uh, in comparison to, you know, um, other uh, issues that they can support that is much less controversial for them and uh, doesn't lead to any reputational issues for them. I think if I can just add, there's there's an interesting thing, isn't there, about the public and who in the public gives money 
to causes. And a lot of people will give money to things that touch their lives. And criminal justice system is not equitable in terms of whose life it touches. It is a system that you are more likely to have contact with if you have a more inequitable life. So if you're more likely to experience poverty and disadvantage, you're more likely to be in the criminal justice system. And therefore, even if you get out of it, you're less likely to have money to donate to causes. And, you know, it's it's really interesting because some of the work that we've done around perception is really challenging because people, you know, and we have a media industry and we have a film industry that kind of points, particularly people in prison, as a particular type. Actually, it's very different in reality. The majority of people in prison go in for relatively, you know, not I'm not saying they haven't caused harm, but they are nonviolent, lower level offences. And they're usually people who live with a massive social problems that lead them to the criminal justice system because there isn't other support. But the charities that we work with in our membership, their job is often to help people to understand the causes of that person's association with the system. You know, that person has been drug dependent for many years. That person lived with trauma, sexual abuse as a child, whatever it is, not to excuse, but to explain and explain the need for support. Now, when we get into that, you know, there we've done some work in the last few years with the Frameworks Institute in the States and here in the UK. And what we found is really interesting that the British public in general, the wonderful British public, has the ability to believe both sets of truths at the same time, that people are rational actors and choose crime, and also that people are capable of change. And that's great because it helps us know what to say and what not to say. There are things we will say that will be red rags to a bull. And then there will be things that we'll say that will open up that empathy and that questioning. And what we're trying to do, which is great to see that Circles and others have started to talk to the realities to see if they can get people to get involved and get interested in that. And then that might pick up different support. I think it's a long, it's a way off, but I don't, I wouldn't close off the possibility of it actually opening up routes to giving, but it would need to be from a wider general public than the people who use the services of these charities. Yeah, and I I think I would really agree with that. And I I, I think um, one of the things that we're struggling with is we started off, you know, very much in terms of reframing how we speak, uh, you know, to the public, to donors, etc. And it was very much the kind of strap line of we we work with perpetrators of sexual abuse to prevent further victims. Um, And the public and people can absolutely tolerate that and understand it. Now, the challenges for us is the next step. Can we go out there publicly and say, actually, we work with perpetrators of sexual abuse because they are many of them are people who are highly traumatized and deserve help and support in their own right as perpetrators of sexual abuse. And we have a sense that that would be a step too far at this stage uh, for many people. Um, and again, for us, we sort of veer between those two extremes in terms of, you know, how we speak about our work. Uh, so it will be very interesting to see if we could push it in that direction. And certainly, you know, we work in circles in Europe as well and in other countries. And 
there's a very great difference between countries. You know, in some of the Scandinavian countries, people are much more prepared to take the more extreme argument and say that you work with perpetrators because they deserve help in their own right, um, as opposed to the UK, which is still quite punitive in that regard, you know, from what we see from international contact. Yes, and Rihanna, you have done uh, circles, a, a lot of work around talking about your work, like you say, and um, putting a lot of effort into trying to break the stigma around your community. And among these projects, you've had a very successful documentary with Sky News. Has this helped with fundraising? Have you found that this has been successful with getting people interested in, in supporting your work? Yes, I think it has, because certainly it's raised the profile of the organization. You know, we are now well known uh, nationally and internationally. And uh, it has what is very interesting, just after the Sky News documentary, just within half an hour, we were contacted by a large number of people saying, we want to volunteer, you know, for for your work. Um, Now, that was really wonderful, but we didn't get the same number of people calling us saying, we want to give you money, (laughs) okay? Um, You know, and again, that that was quite interesting. Um, But having said that, there are people who have come forward afterwards saying, we've seen the documentary and we would like to talk to you, you know, individual philanthropists and uh, funders in that regard not large numbers and certainly not many you know we didn't see a huge increase in legacy funding or you know funding from the public as such it's mostly philanthropists and um, charitable funders that, that that became more interested in working with us and I think that would be kind of borne out across our specialist sector in that the charitable funding community is incredibly committed and generous. It, it isn't the whole charitable funding sector. There are organisations that have a really long history of being in uncomfortable spaces with, with people. I think we're particularly lucky as well with those charitable funders that are um, maybe associated with the Quaker tradition and Quaker faith because of the Quaker faith's feeling about how you take action when you see need in your local community. So the Barakabri Trust, for example, has been very generous over the years. But, you know, that that income is always threatened because of the, the endowments that those organisations have, where they get their money from, the demand from other causes. So COVID has obviously put an unprecedented demand on charitable funding. Um, the unpopularity of the cause and the challenge of the work has challenged some funders over the years who've had to decide to move away from criminal justice because not so much in Rihanna's group case, but many organisations that work in prison, trying to get in to do your work is almost impossible at some times. So a funder wants to help you, but the system doesn't allow that to happen because, you know, staffing shortages in prisons, for example, creates a massive issue for getting in to do the work because you're not prison staff. So there are challenges, but they're still a very generous, committed group of funders. And they are, they're in partnership with organisations trying to create that change, um, which is great to see. And in some ways, of course, we're talking to you today as charities who do something that is not really so much in the public eye. But of course, you guys are going to be subject to the same pressures that all charities are, which is there's a cost of living crisis. There's an inflationary crisis that, you know, we know talking to funders they're making decisions at the moment between, well, do we uplift existing grants so that charities actually get the money they need, but at what cost in the future where we have more grant decisions to make next year and in five years and in 10 years? I mean, are those sorts of changes that are affecting everyone across the sector? 
um are they hitting you guys as well yeah they're they're hitting the sector and i think the other thing that's hitting the sector is that so the two big pots of funding are charitable money and statutory money but the statutory money used to be grants and is now increasingly contracts for service and you know we could have a whole podcast just on government contracts and how absolutely challenging those are. Um, but we'll save it today. But that change in income and the fact that you now have money to do a specific thing that someone wants you to do rather than maybe the money that you need to develop what you need to meet your charitable objectives, that is a challenge. The cost of living crisis, I think, as well in our sector, as it will be in other kind of social needs sectors, is also challenging because not only does it cost organisations more to maybe heat their premises and all of those things, but the people that they are there to support, the cost of living crisis will disproportionately affect them. So we're finding, and I talked to Alina about this, but you know we're finding organisations that have to provide much more basic levels of support. So where they may be, where a job supporter before, they now have to feed the people who come to them. They now have to, you know, have nice warm place for people to go. They they have to help people to find the basic things. And we found that in COVID, people coming out because they didn't have mobile phones. They didn't have the things they needed. And when things get tough in the public funding space, we find in criminal justice that there is always deprioritization of people who've been to prison or people who've got criminal records. And particularly people saying Rihanna's beneficiary group, you know, we can't provide housing to people who've committed sexual offences because they can't go with other people. But there seems to be that deprioritization and eligibility. And that means that people will need more from our sector, which means it needs more money. We tend to find it responds really well to that. But, you know, they have to find the money and that's really challenging. Rihanna, I just wondered, I mean, for Circles UK in particular, what, what's the impact been of the, the financial turmoil? That's quite interesting. We have at least one regular funder that we've uh, relied on for funding for a number of years who have in the last two years changed their criteria, you know, first COVID related and now cost of living um, uh, issues related. And um, we no longer meet their um, criteria for funding. So it is a real risk for us, you know, and it is a difficult space to be in because we, you know, we all understand the cost of living pressures and would want to you know help and support as much as we can but there is a real risk for for our funding you know at the moment we have seen that and certainly our circus providers have reported the same you know that at very local level where they sometimes get small pots of funding from uh, local organizations that is starting to dry up and Rihanna I wonder if you have any advice when it comes to keeping those relationships going with fundraisers, is there anything that charities can do, anything that you've done at Circles that uh, has proven successful? I think the key thing for us is, I mean, A, keep very good relationships with your funders. You know, for us, they are our top priority. They are people who've supported us through thick and thin, and we regularly communicate with them. We share with them. We are very honest with them in terms of, you know, what's going on for us, what challenges we have, um, and we have a relationship. You know, it's not just submitting a funding report once a year and then doing another funding application. We really talk to them regularly. And I think the other thing that I will say to people 
often when there's challenges and crisis, we tend to go inward. We start studying our navels and we disappear. We go and hide because it's so threatening. You saw that with some charities during COVID and currently also with the cost of living uh, crisis. I think my advice would be that it's certainly something that I've learned personally as a CEO in this role. And also as, as Circles UK, we've seen that time and again is actually that is when you need to raise your profile. That is when you need to talk about your work. That is when you need to put yourself out there, write blogs, write articles, post things on your website, communicate, 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 and tell people about your work and what impact it makes. If you don't have a profile, people won't fund you. And they easily forget about you because there's many organizations, many charities, and if you don't speak, you just disappear. I totally agree. And I think don't hide the realities of how tough it is. I think certainly in COVID, our sector had, you know, the last thing it needed was a pandemic. It was already really struggling. But I think the relationships that people had built up, organisations had built up with funders over the years really stood to them because those funders understood the impact of that challenge straight away. So funders were like, I, I credit the charitable funding community with keeping organizations in criminal justice going in COVID. You know, they understood. So they rung straight away and said, we're going to give you some money. We're going to remove the outcomes. Just how do you, what do you need? They didn't have a distanced relationship. And I think that's really important because like I said, the funders in our space tend to be, they are contributing to the solution. They are investing. One of the funders always says to me, we're activists with money, you know, and that's, that's what we have in our space. And it really paid off in that crisis. Don't hide the reality, um, particularly when, you know, when it isn't your fault, but you've got to plan around it. And, and you've got to have those relationships because you can't ring somebody up that you've never spoken to, that you've only ever sent in a template report and say, actually, you know, we've had a massive issue. We've had big issues in our sector in the last few years, you know, issues around safety, the knock-on impact of the tragic murder of people at Fishmongers Hall at, you know, at a sector event. And you've got to be honest and open about the mission you are on and the role of that funder. You know, and that if there are organisations that have individual giving, you know, that's the kind of thing you need to keep people up to date. You need to let them know how they're part of the solution and what them moving away from you would mean. And the last question on that mission Um We've seen great strides forward in some cause areas which we might not have predicted. So, for example, mental health and the way in which this country discusses that and the charities that are supported to work on it. You might think about gay rights as well, which, again, you go back 25 or 30 years, we're miles and miles further forward than we used to be. Um, Is there a chance that the kind of the criminal justice system and particularly maybe working with people who have perpetrated harm in the past, like um, Circles UK, is, is there a sense that those causes can can move up the kind of public sympathy in a way that, as I say, we've seen with these other causes in the past? I think it's a real challenge at this particular time in terms of public perception. I think as well, you know, you'll go through phases about where the kind of political ideology as well is. And certainly at this present time, and certainly, you know, the last Secretary of State, we've had more punitive policies and things that are driving further inequality if they succeed. Now, 
for some, that means that the voluntary sector is seen as the kind of natural activist, natural critic, and the kind of natural polar opposite of, of that feeling. So that's important to have that campaigning and that advocacy and people might support there. Um, but those systems aren't set up in that way because individual giving has always been really low. I think what we are seeing more and more is where they are invested in. We've got good evidence, like the circle's evidence is is second to none. We've got some brilliant evidence about what works and how it works. But trying to get to the public perception, trying to get to those channels, particularly at times when, you know, people don't have enough money to try and say to them, we don't think you should give it to these traditional churches. We should give, you should give it to this. That That's that's definitely a big ask. We're up to the challenge and we'll keep it up um, because there does need to be a massive shift in what we're trying to achieve. Anne and Rihanna, thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much. Each week, we bring you a good news bulletin, positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the sector. And today's good news story involves two things we love here at Third Sector, bookshops and a man named Russell. Well, you see, I said earlier that we were the oddest couple, but to be honest, if this is, if this is the approach you're going to take, <laughs> then I'm gonna, we can just do this week in, week out. You're right, it is very important to have a lot of Russells around, um, but this story is about someone who, dare I say, is quite a lot more famous and certainly better looking and richer than I am. It all started last week. Uh, Leanne Frid. Uh, Leanne owns a Norwich independent bookstore, which is called Book Bugs and Dragon Tales. Yes. Uh, she launched a crowdfunding campaign because she was hoping to raise £15,000. And the idea was that the money raised would help the bookshop with more outreach for children and also protect the bookshop at a time when financially everyone's struggling just a little bit. So she launched the crowdfunder campaign and then something very strange happened, which is that hours later she spotted a £5,000 donation, which had been made by one Russell Ira Crow, mm. who, as regular listeners will know, is really quite famous. So she did some online sleuthing to see if this Russell Crowe was the Russell Crowe that uh, she imagined it was. Um, and according to what she told the BBC, she was able to find out that one of the people who had retweeted the bookshop's crowdfunder announcement was a friend of Russell Crowe. And that was enough to confirm for her that this is how the actor probably found out about the initiative. Yes, and she also said that the gesture is in keeping with Crowe's public persona. And after doing a bit of Googling, I have to say Russell Crowe is quite a do-gooder. Mm -hmm. In 2012, he donated $250,000 to help rebuild a Jewish school that had burned down in Montreal. And a few years before that, he donated $100,000 to fund the building of a pool at a school in rural Australia. And more recently, he has been known to donate and promote people's personal fundraisers. In 2020, he donated almost £300 towards an aspiring actor's university tuition and $500 to a Beirut restaurant that had been damaged in an explosion. So he really is raising the bar for all Russells out there, isn't he? How does that make you feel? Uh, see, listeners can't see this. Uh, Alina has just fixed me with a look, which tells me exactly what she feels, <laughs> which is that I am on the bottom rung all of a sudden of this ladder that yeah. she's created entirely from her own imagination. I'll level with you, listening to all this incredible philanthropic effort that he's put in. I feel a little bit inadequate, not for the first time. I'm looking across the water and thinking, well, if I, you know, if I had that much money to give away, would I give it to all these good causes? Or would I, in fact, kind of keep it in my basement and just count it every night? There's always a risk that I'd do the second one. But maybe, maybe. But could Russell Crowe report the news as brilliantly as you do? Um, he was. He played a reporter in a film. Now, I'm going to show my ignorance here because we were talking to Andy Ricketts, the news editor, who's kind of got an encyclopedic knowledge of all things film. 
And so he was kind of running through all the... Like, I've never seen any of them, but there is a film in which he plays a reporter who then goes on to expose, like, a government conspiracy. And so he's not just a journalist writing the news every day, which is, to be fair, the best job in the world anyway. But he also manages to bring down a corrupt government. So I think I could aspire to that. Do we agree that that's kind of on the horizon if I work hard enough? Um, okay, well, then Russell Crowe, he cannot be outdone. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> he's, a, he's a better person than you. Oh, he's I a see. better yeah. reporter than you. Yeah. No, no, I have to explain about something. He was acting as a reporter. Um, this isn't, like, this is my actual job. I'm not pretending. This is really what I do. I know it seems remarkable. Your method. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Russell Hargrave. And I'm Alina Martin. Thank you to our guests, Anne Fox and Rihanna Taylor, and our producers, Aidan Lyons and Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.